This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. This is Under the Weather from the BBC. With me, Claire Nazir and Simon King. In this podcast, we'll be joined by a range of experts as we answer some of weather's most interesting and challenging questions. In this episode, could climate modification save the planet? One way is to shoot sulfates into the stratosphere. Another technique I heard was putting up a large array of of mirrors in space to, to block the sunlight and cast a sort of a shadow across the Earth. Under the weather from the BBC. We're posing quite a big question, aren't we? Could climate modification save the planet? So we've got climate modification and we've got weather modification. So weather modification is manipulating the atmosphere locally to produce a result like rain. And it happens, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. We've got uh, on, on ski resorts, you have snow cannons. They are modifying the weather uh, and cloud seeding. You know, that's that's been going on for decades but then you've got the larger scale things, haven't you? Climate modification. Which also is happening right now in lots of different ways, like capturing carbon, carbon dioxide from power plants to reduce greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So the broadest sense of the word, geoengineering, is deliberately manipulating the physical, chemical and biological aspects of the Earth's system. It's been something which we've practised for hundreds of years and it's a very current topic as well. You know, just the saying, do the rain dance, that is a desire for us to want to change the weather. Or I want a dry day for my wedding. You know, you, you're wanting, therefore, to, to modify the weather to suit you. We're always wanting that barbecue summer, aren't uh-huh, we? Yeah. How much money would you pay to have a nice sunny evening after working hard at the BBC? And I've always said that, actually, if, if I was able to modify or create the weather myself... I'd be a very, very rich man. Mm. But it's playing God, to be honest. It is. We've got the big morality issues here, haven't we, about Mm. changing the weather and, you know, the bigger thing, changing the climate. And when you look back at history, you can see it's checkered. It really Mm. is. Things change through history and weather became something which was used as a weapon through Mm. World War II, the Cold War, the Vietnam War. And it was much more cloak and dagger. Can I tell you my favourite story from World War II about how weather modification was happening in the UK by our British government uh, to help us in the the war effort? So in World War II, you know, a huge number of hours of flying was lost because of fog at our airfields. So in 1942, Churchill uh, asked his scientific advisor, Lord Cherwell, to address the matter with extreme urgency. So they went off and they did some research and after looking at it, they discovered that the best solution was to create multiple fire pits burning over 6,000 gallons of oil down the runway and that would help increase the temperature around the airfield and therefore the fog would disappear. And it worked. Now at the time, they said that it shortened the war, they said that it saved the lives of 10,000 airmen, that's disputed now but it's just so interesting that that's what they were doing i would give anything to guarantee there was not fog at manchester airport when i fly to my work in the south and i fly quite regularly and it scuppers these small little planes mm-hmm. 
However, when you talk about burning thousands <laughs> of gallons of fuel, and we're talking about greenhouse gases, I mean, there is obviously there's the moral issue there. There's the amount of pollution it burns, and the cost is immense for dispersing fog when perhaps the sun will do it within an hour or so. Well, they, they said that during that World War II effort, it cost £44,500 yeah, exactly. an hour to yeah. do this thing. Uh, but they did actually think about installing these these fire pits and things at Heathrow Airport uh, and other major airports. But then actually the technological advances of instrument landing systems, uh, you know, for them to be able to land the plane without any visibility, that kind of became better than burning fire pits and... Uh, and doing that sort of side of the weather modification side. Joining us now is Professor Jim Fleming. Hi, Jim. Hi, Claire. And you're the author of the book Fixing the Sky, which is all about weather modification. When we first talked about doing this episode, I was a bit unsure about geoengineering and weather modification and climate modification. By the time you start reading your book, and then you think, blimey, this is like stuff that's happened in in history it's happening today it g- gave me my motto really which is uh, everything's unprecedented unless you study history and so this uh, this topic was situated right between the uh, follies of the past and the proposals going forward to uh, intervene in the planet. So in your book, you talk about salesmen, scientists and soldiers, all who have dabbled in weather modification. And there are just so many big characters that you talk about who have all tried to save the world in some shape or form weather-wise. That's right. And it was uh, split between commercialization of the weather control and militarization of it. And so uh, many of the salesmen, as you called them, were uh, were charlatans that were trying to uh, make a buck or make a pound, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the soldiers were truly hoping to control the weather and possibly in that way control the world. The scientists were uh, sincere, but often they were uh, one theory people who had an idea and wanted to push it to the limits uh, without realizing how complex the uh, the world's weather and climate systems are. So, Jim, give us some examples then of kind of the early days in weather modification. What what were people doing? Well, the first uh, official U.S. meteorologist on the payroll in 1840 was a scientist named James Espy. And James truly was a distinguished scientist who developed the convective theory of storms that Heated air rises and rising air cools and cooling air condenses its moisture and thus you get precipitation and storms. Well, he he had a great idea to make the convection stronger by basically lighting giant fires. He was going to propose, he never did this, but he proposed to light the Appalachian Mountains ridges covered with forests on Sunday afternoons so that they would provide overnight rains for the new week coming up. He was considered basically a a madman when he did that kind of proposal. And weather modification happened during the Vietnam War, didn't it? The cloud seeding in the monsoonal seasons uh, across the Vietnam theater, and that included Cambodia and Thailand, uh, were an attempt to, uh, as uh, as it was revealed later in the congressional record, uh, to, as they said, make mud, not war. They were trying to make it rain hard on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And they again, they claimed success. It was definitely cloak and dagger, as you said. And there were only really two people, the president and the secretary of defense, who knew about this at the time. Wow. The base commanders, the pilots, they were just told fly at this period, put out these chemicals, and come back to base. Well, so even even um, the, the pilots themselves, they didn't know what they were doing? They knew they were shooting flares off into the clouds, and they were supposed to take some visual observations. But there were no rain gauges on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and there was no clear idea that it was really that successful. When you talk about make mud, not war, 
Was that a mantra that was used elsewhere? Well, it, it's an echo of the of the sixties. Make mm-hmm. uh, make make yes. love, not war. Uh, but there was a, it was an off the cuff remark by uh, one of the defense officials to the Congress, which really, in a way, aggravated the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had been covered by uh, Senator Claiborne Pell in the in the congressional hearings, and then the the Russians picked up on the issue of environmental warfare and moved it to the UN circles, where the U.S. got fully embarrassed by participating so much into this uh, nefarious sorts of techniques to uh, fight the environment. Can we fast forward to Lynmouth in Dorset in 1952 and Operation Cumulus? Because obviously that one caught our eye because I lived and I was born near Cranfield where (laughs) apparently weather experiments were going on and then something awful happened 80 miles down the road. Could you tell us about that? This was the occasion of the giant flood that was uh, after uh, and during some cloud seeding, but was not completely clear that it was caused by the cloud seeding. Um, The pilots were up in gliders and trying not to be too uh, intrusive, but they were spraying uh, chemicals on the clouds and trying to increase convection. And uh, whoops, they might have increased it too much, or at least that's what some of the pilots thought based on their visual observations. But the truth of weather control or weather modification experiments is there's really uh, no good statistical control about what happens. Uh, they could intervene in a cloud, but they can't control it. And that was true from uh, the get-go. 35 people died during that flooding. It was an awful event. And in fact, the BBC um, marked that event 50 years later and picked up on some quite revealing documents which suggested that there were experiments going on, but as you say, nothing could have been proven that it, that the flooding and the heavy rain 80 miles away from Cranfield resulted in, in this flooding. Well, the, there is the statistical problem I mentioned, but there's also the a, attempt to preserve deniability, uh, to cloak these experiments, uh, uh, keep them away from the public eye unless it's absolutely necessary to reveal it. Uh, there was a case off the coast of Florida in uh, Hurricane King, 1947, where the U.S. Air Force was putting uh, dry ice into the storm, and they were seeking to, in a way, intervene, control it, do something to the storm. Uh, well, right after their seeding runs, uh, the storm stopped and moved on shore, which was not expected at all, and basically uh, devastated Savannah, Georgia. Uh, that was 1947. Uh, the documents about that event were not fully released until 1979. And so when, when things go into the military realm, you can often uh, not find them very easily. I just want to bring it forward a little bit to kind of current practices. And I, again, I knew about this when it happened to the Summer Olympics in Beijing because they wanted a, a dry day for the opening ceremony. They cloud seeded the day before, didn't they, just to the southwest of Beijing. And they had a huge amount of rainfall away from Beijing, and that kind of dried the clouds out and it prevented any rain for the opening ceremony. And I thought it was fascinating that that, mm. that was going on. And, and Jim, you know, it's still happening now, I guess, cloud seeding. The idea that you could dry out the clouds is, is very simple, very naive in a way. And um, I was just in Beijing in December 2015. Uh, seems like a short time ago, but it was a long time ago. And the Chinese Meteorological Agency has a whole building, and basically they have a city within a city in Beijing dedicated to their uh, meteorological services. But they they truly do have a a big investment in in weather uh, intervention. Just picking up on a word you said there, they're quite naive. Mm -hmm. 
it is naive to think that you can dry out the clouds. It's it's almost um, uh, you know uh, one. It's very simple idea. It's, it's sort of a, a one one uh, metaphor that doesn't quite uh, address the complexity of the atmosphere. So whether it worked or if it worked is still an open question. This is Under the Weather, the podcast for curious meteorological minds. I'm Simon King with Claire Nazir, and in this episode, the weather modification expert, Jim Fleming. We want to answer this bigger question of, could climate modification save the planet? We've got global warming and climate change. We know that the Earth is is warming up. Is there anything that we can do, engineering-wise, to reduce the global temperature? My simple distributed answer is yes, the big climate engineering conference I attended in Berlin in October 2017 was focused on more speculation, more potential to do incrementally small intervention experiments in the upper atmosphere, for example, or to try to take the massive task of capturing and safely storing all the world's carbon dioxide emissions somewhere. And so the discussions were on the realm of possibility. There were discussions about governance, but there was nothing yet to govern except a, a more of a precautionary approach. And uh, and so the geoengineers are, are, are mostly in the research realm talking about this. Our National Academy report re- uh, recommended that uh, the, the deployment be way uh, in the future, if at all, because we simply are trying too hard to jump from a minimal understanding of the climate and uh, needs for monitoring the climate into the control mode. And so jumping too quickly to control is dangerous. What sort of things are we talking about, Jim? You know, so in, in some of these discussions, what, what are the techniques that people are talking about to, to use? Because I've read stuff about big solar flares high up in space that will reflect the solar energy or uh, pumping the atmosphere full of sulfates to create thicker and brighter clouds to increase the reflectiveness of the clouds. Are these things people are seriously thinking about? I think that the large community of atmospheric scientists is very sceptical about this. And I think that a a smaller group, 5 to 50 uh, innovators, are trying to think of ways to cool the planet. And uh, one way is to shoot sulfates into the stratosphere, perhaps, but you don't know what would happen to the ozone levels or what would happen to the hydrology. Uh, another technique I heard was putting up space flyers or really a large array of, of mirrors in space to, to block the sunlight and cast a sort of a shadow across the Earth. Uh, other techniques involve the ocean. We're trying to put uh, iron uh, n- nutrients into the ocean to make a plankton bloom and have the uh, growing plankton take up the CO2, but it's not clear that it would be a permanent solution or even a very effective one. And so there's all sorts of uh, what I call, uh, for the British uh, listeners, Heath Robinson approaches, (laughs) and what I call in the U.S. Rube Goldberg attempts to come up with a technique that could cool the planet. Uh, move the planet further away from the sun. You know, there's there's all kinds of ideas that come that come through my uh, inbox every week, and I don't see that they have uh, long-term effectiveness. I think it's a very scary area to sort of indulge in when there's so many other things that we can do, and there are so many issues with it. But come, hang on a minute, I want to just kind of throw in there that we have got a warming planet. The CO2 emissions are rising. Uh, you know, governments around the world 
are they doing enough to to stop that? You know, do we not need the pioneers? Do we not need the science? Do we not need people to say, oh, let, let's just suck out all the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and see what we can do with it? You know, you need you need those people to kind of say, right, let's 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 try and do something because if we don't do anything, then what's going to happen? I think there's too many unknown quantities. I think it's a beast geoengineering, and you know, yes, there should be R and D, but. As you know, as Jim's saying, a lot more work, a lot more work, which is theoretical rather than experimental. What I did say, and I said this at the uh, at uh, some very large discussion uh, meetings, that it can't simply be uh, Western scientists from places like NASA or the Lawrence Livermore Labs uh, proposing this. It has to come out of uh, a large international conversation. Uh, I think the IPCC does a good job at gathering uh, the nations of the world together. But a geoengineering discussion would have to be international, intergenerational, and interdisciplinary at least. And we're not at that stage yet. We don't, we don't, we're not getting the, the kind of input from the ethical, historical community that we need. So if you look at the recommendations that come out of uh, groups like the American Meteorological Society or the American Geophysical Union, They've picked up on this, uh, what I call the three I's, the international, intergenerational, interdisciplinary. And they're starting to advocate not just for new techniques, but for a full uh, uh, cross-cutting evaluation of what might happen and what could happen. Uh, Being part of the National Academy's study, I was not in any way against research or trying to understand the system. But the the more more mainstream climate... um, climatologists, they're very much interested in how good is our monitoring system, how much can we learn about the atmosphere, how can we go through understanding and uh, experimentation perhaps before we take a big leap into control, which could be what I've called a sort of a planetary oops if we overshoot. I just want to just draw on one other point, uh, if I may, Jim, is that we talk about these big climate intervention and, and engineering events. And uh, in history, a lot of these things have come about because that close interaction between the military and them wanting to gain the, uh, the upper hand in, in warfare. Do you think that we could see climatological interventions for the purpose of war rather than the purpose of trying to save the planet? I'm going to mention a couple of historical uh, examples t- uh, by way of an answer. Uh, in 1950s, the, the Strategic Air Command uh, General said, uh, if you control the weather, you control the world, and it would be good for an all-weather air force and would give us dominion over the enemy. Uh, the U.S. Navy got into hurricane modifications, so they might use typhoons to steer them against a, an enemy fleet. Um, in... Uh, in 1955, Johnny von Neumann, the polymath who was involved in the first uh, numerical weather prediction experiments, uh, he wrote a paper called Can We Survive Technology? And he, what he said in there was uh, the nuclear proliferation was a grave concern, but so was the possibility that we could control climate. And so if a nation gained this upper hand and was able to control climate to the extent of damaging another nation – uh, that would be, uh, he said, probably more devastating than nuclear proliferation. So uh, these are these are big things. These are things that need to be talked about in uh, in large scale uh, terms with 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 all the different uh, uh, challenges that we can bring together to, to understand it. Somebody asked me once: Is the military currently uh, working on this or operationally doing this? And I said. I have no idea because I <laughs> yeah. don't have a – and so, another fellow – this was at a big meeting at the Silomark 
uh, campus in uh, Western California. And the fellow said, well, I can say they're not doing this. So right after that, I said, how high is your security clearance go? And he says, not high enough yeah. to figure it out. <laughs> um, so I'm not saying I'm, – I'm not a conspiracy person. I study the history of things that are in the open record and have in the archives. But this has been a pattern that uh, prevailing through climate or through weather control has been in the, uh, in the, um, in the possibility of, of happening. Jim? It's been absolutely <laughs> fascinating. I, honestly, when we started looking into this, and I've re- read your book, I just I found it so interesting. Mm-hmm. It's such a, a great subject and such a topical subject. But we want to answer the question, could climate modification save the planets? Jim? Well, I have to say maybe. Uh, if you look at James Lovelock's essay uh, several years ago, he talked about climate engineers being planetary surgeons or uh, sort of at the level of the barber surgeons of, of yore, that the cure might be worse than the disease. And so uh, the, the concern is that we just simply don't know enough unless we get a much larger conversation and much more understanding underway. Professor Jim Fleming, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Under the Weather from BBC Radio. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. Under the Weather was presented by me, Simon King and Claire Nazir and was produced by Ronan Breen and Stuart Morgan. Next time on Under the Weather. Space weather forecasting now is trying to see how these regions are developing over a few days as they move perhaps towards the centre of the sun as we see it from Earth. Subscribe to Under the Weather now for a new episode every Monday.